0: All right, well, we have some special plans this morning. So go ahead and take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 10. It'll be a little different, but start in Matthew chapter 10. Now, the Bible has a shallow end that's easy to understand. Even a child can comprehend the basic truths of God, sin, and salvation. Thankful for that. But The Bible also has a deep end where you find intricate, complex truths. That is to be expected because God is big. You might like to avoid the deep end, just kind of keep things light and fluffy, but you shouldn't because it leads to big worship, deeper worship. Now, sometimes, though, read through the Bible, you encounter verses in Scripture that you can tell that they run deep. They're, they're kind of like riptides where if you spend too much time in them, they, they threaten to pull you out to sea, to deeper water. When you read these verses, you, you probably get the sense there's, there's more going on here. But, you know, if you start exploring, you'll quickly be in deep water. And if you're not that good of a spiritual swimmer, you might get lost. So a lot of people just just keep reading. Let's just not go there. Just don't think about it. Just keep moving. Well, last week, I think we encountered one of those passages in Matthew 10. Jesus sends his 12 disciples out to preach. He gives them the first of two big commissions found in Matthew's gospel. What's striking, though, is just how narrow the scope is Of this first mission. It's found in verses five and six. It says these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. He said, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This this might strike you as odd, like I thought Jesus was the Savior of the world. Why is he sending his disciples to only Israel and just like avoiding the Gentiles on purpose that That seems wrong. And doesn't this seem to contradict the second great commission we find in Matthew's gospel at the end? Or why is it that after the resurrection, Jesus now tells his disciples, like pretty much the opposite, now go into all the nations and make disciples. But, like, let's not think about it too much. Oh, well, let's just call Matthew 10 a historical artifact and not worry about it. The vast majority of us, I assume, are Gentiles anyway. It's all these issues about Israel. They they don't matter that much to us. Let's just move on. You, You could take that approach, just kind of drop it, move on. I think many people do, but nagging questions remain. Like, why are the two commissions in Matthew so different? Why does Jesus, at first, explicitly prevent his disciples from reaching any of the Gentiles? only later to reverse that and explicitly tell them, go into all the nations. And what becomes of Israel? Has Jesus abandoned his plan to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel? It's the church only for Gentiles. It's obvious today that the church is overwhelmingly Gentile, but you know that Christianity grew out of the soil of Judaism. So what do we make of the Jewish roots of our faith? How does that affect the church's identity? And mission these jewish roots can't be denied like jesus the messiah came as a jew he lived and ministered entirely in israel he didn't even bother trying to reach during his time on earth the gentile nations his own disciples were exclusively jewish and the early church they formed at first was exclusively jewish what do we make of all this and and why does it matter how does understanding the composition of the people of God affect our lives and the mission of the church today? It does, but how? And so I'm telling you, Matthew 10, 5 through 6, it's, it's kind of like one of those riptide passages. If you play in it and think about it too long, it just kind of takes you out to deeper waters. But this morning, that's, that's exactly what we want to do on purpose. We want to follow the undercurrent of this text that we might explore the deeper plan of God for the people of God in Scripture. How are we going to do this? Our, our time is still somewhat limited, so we're actually just going to focus entirely on Matthew, Matthew's gospel itself, which is very fitting because, look, on Sunday mornings, we happen to be going through Matthew verse by verse. This is actually going to help us better appreciate the first gospel. But also, Matthew, he's only second to the Apostle Paul in exposing the place of, Jews and Gentiles, excuse me, in God's plan. Matthew's gospel is the perfect hinge between the Old and New Testaments. The church has always placed Matthew's gospel first and for very good reason. The Old Testament is very Jewish, wouldn't you say? From the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, roughly about 2,000 years. And during that time, God was working essentially exclusively through his elect nation, Israel. He gave to them his law, his covenants, his promises, his prophets, priests, and kings. Gentile salvation was not a mystery in the Old Testament, but there was a clear Jewish priority. Whatever God would do for the nations is going to happen through Israel. But after Jesus comes, the next 2,000 years after Jesus did not really go as expected by most Jews. This new people of God, the church, emerged, and it became Gentile dominated. Yeah, I mean, it it started among Jews, but the Jews quickly became marginalized. The nation was unbelieving. And for the next 2,000 years, Gentiles would run the show. And furthermore, that the life and the worship of believers on this side of the cross is just so different from how the Jews lived in the Old Testament. Just gone are the rituals, laws, the sacrifices, the temple. You turn the page from the old to the new, like so much Changes. But this is where Matthew really comes in after 400 years of silence since the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi. God has spoken again, most of all, in the incarnate Son, Christ. The greatest revelation of God is is Christ. Matthew writes as his apostle to tell us about him, but Matthew also writes with a clearly Jewish Christian audience in mind. And so he takes it upon himself much more than the other gospel writers, to flesh out the implications of the coming of the Christ for the people of God. We know that Israel in the Old Testament, and the church in the New Testament, they're related somehow. Matthew, the hinge, does a lot to tell us how. So here's what I want to do this morning. Just have us step back. We're going through verse by verse in Matthew. We're down in the the weeds and the trees, but just step back And consider the big picture message of Matthew's gospel. It's like we're going out to sea on a sightseeing tour. I'll be your guide so you don't get lost. But I just want to take you around Matthew's gospel. Showing you all the places where Matthew himself highlights God's plan for Israel and the Gentiles. Now that Christ has come. And you're going to find this is actually a huge theme. The theme in Matthew's gospel. I can already tell you in advance, one of the main lessons we'll learn, it's, it's no different than Romans 1 16, That the gospel of Jesus, it's the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, it's for everyone, but to the Jew first. There is a Jewish priority in the gospel. What that means, what are its implications, how does that impact us today, we'll, we'll find out. But our goal is to survey Matthew, that we might appreciate God's redemptive plans for Israel, Gentiles, and us. We're just going to survey Matthew to appreciate God's redemptive plans for Israel, Gentiles, and us. So, to get started, go back to Matthew chapter 1. This is still going to be an ambitious task. We're going on a bit of an odyssey. If you're a newer Christian, this this might be a little bit much for you. this is your first time at this church, I don't know what to tell you. We, We don't always do this. I think the best way to stick with us and not get lost is just to follow along in your own Bible. And if need be, grab a pew Bible and turn to page one of the New Testament. As we go through Matthew, I'm just going just to point out the landmarks where we learn about Israel and the Gentiles in God's plan. And at the end, we'll, we'll synthesize, bring together everything we observed that we might build a biblical appreciation of the plan of God for the people of God. Let's see where that goes. So it starts in chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the first words of Matthew's gospel, we're introduced to a very Jewish Messiah. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew then gives us the genealogy of Jesus, tracing him back to David and Abraham. Only Jews would care about this genealogy stuff. But it's a big deal. It affirms that God kept his promises. The Messiah was said to be. A son of David, and he has come. It's very interesting, though, that several Gentiles are peppered through Christ's genealogy. Pretty interesting. Chapter 2 tells us about the birth of Jesus, who is who? The king of the Jews. You see, the Jewish priority, the Messiah, came as the king of the Jews. But also notable, who comes to worship him? Not the Jews. They don't know. They don't seem to care. Rather, Matthew alone shows us how a group of Gentile magi from the East are the only ones who come to find him initially to worship him as the king of the Jews. How interesting it almost seems like foreshadowing. Chapter 3, we're introduced to John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. He sent only to Israel to turn the hearts of the people back to God. But we have a critical passage in chapter 3. Make no mistake, John. He's not preaching salvation by first birth, salvation by ethnicity. Look at chapter three, verse nine. This is John in response to the Pharisees. He says to them, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Whatever Jewish priority there might be in the coming of the Messiah and his gospel, Don't think for a second salvation is by being a Jew. It's not. Being being the physical seed of Abraham is not enough. It's a point Paul will pick up on in Galatians 3. Now, finally, in chapter 4, we get into the ministry of Jesus. He's on the scene. John gets arrested. This is where Matthew brings us. Verse 12 is a turning point. Because it says, Jesus withdraws. Where? Where does he go? Verse 12. He goes into galilee and most of his active ministry would be in galilee it's actually very significant at the time all of the pure serious jews lived in jerusalem in the south and the jews in galilee were regarded as like partially polluted because galilee was teeming with gentiles and romans but that's where jesus chose to make his home base for ministry And Matthew is the one who who sees the prophetic significance of this. Verse 15, Jesus goes to where it is dark. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Why? Verse 16, that those who are sitting in darkness might see a great light. And look, while Jesus still ministered almost exclusively to Jews, we're going to find it's mostly the Gentiles who had any spiritual vision. Now we'll jump over to the Sermon on the Mount. We spent enough time there. Go to chapter 8. Just keep following here. We see Jesus in action, working wonders among the Jews. But to our surprise, he does not find great faith among the Jews. Where does he find great faith? He finds it among a Gentile, a Roman centurion. In verse 10, upon seeing the, just the unflinching faith, This Gentile has in Jesus and his power. Jesus is amazed and says this, verse 10. Truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This sounds backwards, like it's supposed to be the Jews who have great faith in their Messiah, but he finds it in a Gentile. As it turns out, it's starting to look like anyone who has faith gains a seat at this table. And look, at, here's the first really landmark passage, verses 11 and 12, chapter 8. What Jesus says after this incident, verse 11, he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the first big landmark where we're introduced to the great reversal that would take place. The sons of the kingdom refers to Israel. And by all their many privileges, it's like they were put on a high speed rail that leads straight into the kingdom. All they have to do is just receive the Messiah and, like, they'll be in. But the shock is that we learn that they derail. They did not have great faith. And instead, many distant travelers would find their way in. Because they came by the only entrance, the narrow gate of faith. Just keep in mind, though, when Matthew is actually writing this, this great reversal is taking place. A Jewish remnant has believed in Jesus, but the nation already by and large has been hardened in unbelief. And meanwhile, all these Gentiles are flooding into the church. But but why do you think it is that, that Matthew, he's the only one to record these words, of Jesus. It's like, it's as if he's helping his Jewish Christian audience to come to terms with the blindness of their people. Salvation is not by ethnicity. It's by grace through faith. That means even Gentiles can make their way in. It also means even Jews can be shut out. Now, what that means for national Israel, we'll see later. Now, go to Matthew 10. This, is, this was our starting passage. It's where Jesus formally names his 12 disciples who will become apostles. And it's very significant. They're all Jews. They're all Jews. And this is where he commissions them on their first mission. And again, significantly, verses 5 and 6, it is only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a critical passage establishing the fact of Jewish priority in God's salvation plan. Just the facts. The Messiah came as a Jew. He gathered to himself exclusively Jewish disciples, and he sent them only to Israel. This was the wisdom and the will of God. But you should know that in the rest of this discourse, the rest of the chapter, Jesus says many things that really anticipate the mission of the 12 will turn global. We'll save that for future Sundays, because we're moving fast. Go to chapter 12. Now, this is another huge turning point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus continues to teach and heal, but the religious leaders can't stand it. They're outraged, largely because he's healing on a Sabbath. And so verse 14 says they they begin to conspire to kill him. And as a result, Jesus withdraws once again. And Matthew identifies this was in fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 18 and, and around there, Isaiah said that God's servant would do what? He would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then down in verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles will have hope. Do you see that the message Matthew is sending as he's the one who brings this to our attention? We're getting the impression that while God planned for the Messiah to go first and foremost to Israel, as they reject him, that will actually be the God-ordained catalyst for the Messiah to turn to the Gentiles. I mean, can this be? This was unthinkable to any Jew at the time. But I mean, the evidence is starting to pile up. And again, when Matthew's writing this, it's already taking place. Matthew is demonstrating what Paul says in Romans eleven twelve. That the failure of Israel means riches for the Gentiles. it is just the wisdom of God's plan. Now, speaking of Israel's failure, look down at verse 24. There's another healing in verse 23. The crowds, they're amazed. And it says, they're starting to wonder if Jesus could be the son of David. That means the Messiah. Matthew makes this dichotomy throughout his gospel between the Jewish crowds and their leaders. The crowds, they initially react favorably to Jesus. And we get the impression that they came very close to believing in him. But the sad fact that's still true, that as the leaders go, so goes the nation. And these spiritual leaders, they had just a chokehold on the spiritual life of Israel. And they were quick to stamp out any embers of belief that might have emerged from the people. And so verse 23, the people are amazed, but verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, heard what? The people, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. This is a pretty big deal. I mean, look, you have the Messiah in your midst. He's working the the signs of God by the spirit of God. But then you attribute that to Satan Jesus calls that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, an unpardonable sin. This, in Matthew's gospel, is a clear turning point. Now, the spiritual leaders are dead set on killing Jesus. And sadly, it's true that the hearts of the people are not going to be rescued from their grasp. And so we find from here on out, Jesus no longer offers the kingdom to the people. He only offers rebuke. He'll still teach the word of God, but in Galilee... He only now teaches the crowds in parables. And that's chapter 13. This is the parables of Jesus. Now, in the parables, Jesus teaches many new and important truths about his kingdom. But as it concerns our survey this morning, what you need to understand is why he started teaching in parables. Why? Because I don't know, you read this chapter, parables can be hard to understand, they're enigmatic. That's actually the point. Verse 10. Chapter 13, the disciples asked Jesus, because they sensed, like, why are you teaching them, the people, why are you teaching the crowds in parables? And look at his answer, verse 11. Jesus answered them, to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, or I'm sorry, down to verse Verse 13. I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus taught parables that he might reveal truth and conceal truth at the same time. The Jews had hardened their hearts in unbelief through their leaders. And God now really confirms that hardening by removing the testimony from their eyes, taking the light away from them. Jesus teaches in parables That the unbelieving might no longer have access to the truth. Sealing their judgment. But the faithful with eyes to see are still fed what is true. This is a form of God's judgment. Now at this point, Jesus continues to withdraw. Chapter 15, another big passage. We see Jesus withdrawing. He's going out of Israel into the land of Tyre and Sidon in the north. This is core Gentile territory he's not going to minister to the people he's just with his 12 he's investing in the 12 but this happens verse 22 while he's in the region it says and a canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying have mercy on me lord son of david my daughter is cruelly demon possessed so we have a canaanite woman back then that's two strikes but she has heard of Jesus, and like she it's like she totally believes in him. she's not seen him or met him before. she's only heard the stories, but she when she finds him, she's like totally believes in him. She cries out to him without a hint of doubt he's the son of David. that's the messianic title. She has faith that Jesus is the Messiah. What does she care? She's a Gentile? What does she care about the Jewish Messiah? but she does. I mean this is amazing because so few Jews had this response. She's not a Jew though. Can, can Jesus help her? He didn't come for her. What's he going to say? Well, he, he puts her faith to the test. Verse 24, a big verse. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus received his own commission from the father, which was go reach Israel. But again, we're starting to wonder like just how exclusive really was that mission. It sure seems like the mission of Jesus brought a lot of hope and help to a lot of gentiles. It sure seems like his gospel, it's actually the power of God for salvation for everyone. Anyone who believes, doesn't matter your race, skin color, nationality, your gender, your social class. His gospel was to the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. He receives all who come to him for mercy. By faith, and as such, this Canaanite woman she passes the test with flying colors. You read, keep reading the passage on your own, but she becomes Matthew's model for the type of faith that saves. From a Canaanite woman, verse twenty-eight, Jesus responds. He says, "O oh woman, your faith is great." The second time we encounter great faith, again a Gentile. He says, "It shall be done for you as you wish." Her daughter was healed at once. Why is Matthew picking on these episodes? He's, he's telling us something. Something is changing. A reversal is taking place. Now, with, with, with true saving faith in mind, we get to Matthew 16, which is, you might say, an early climax in Matthew's gospel, whereas his rejection in Matthew 12 was, was a low point, the blasphemy against the spirit. Matthew 16, the confession of Jesus is a high point. And so go to 16. This brings us to Peter's you know, full confession. Who is Jesus? He, he asked them, who do people say the son of man is? Peter gets it right. He says, you are the Christ and the son of the living God. Verse 16. Now, you'll have to note the setting of this grand confession. Where is this taking place? Verse 13 says, Caesarea Philippi. It's outside of Israel. He took them north. Again, it's, it's as if to signal like, no one in Israel believes this, but here's the thing. There there are Jews who believe. There is a remnant of Jews who believes in Jesus. There's at least 11 of them, excluding Jesus, that they're with him, or rather excluding Judas. And, and so Jesus says in verse 18 that, that on this confession, he says, I will build my church. Jesus will build a new people in the future, not set apart. By first birth, but by second birth, this church will be home to everyone who confesses him just like Peter did. But to save a people, to form a people, Jesus knows he has to redeem them. And this is where after the confession of who he is, it's the first time he reveals to his disciples exactly how he's going to create this church. He's got to do something for them. He has to purchase their salvation How? Verse 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. We know all this. It's old news to us. But at the time, this was obviously shocking. And and just look at the wholesale rejection of Jesus predicted here by the Jews. Jews. He's going to Jerusalem. That's the city of David. There he's going to be killed by whom? The elders, chief priests, and scribes. It's the three categories of Israel's spiritual leadership. But God will turn their rejection into victory as he will be raised up on the third day. This is still unthinkable to the disciples. But God is actually going to use the death of the Messiah at the hands of his people to accomplish salvation and actually open its doors to the nations. I hope you see, this is old to us. We take it for granted, but especially back then, you have to see the marvel of this plant. We would say this is crazy. Now, for now, Jesus knows, like he's on a train. It can't be stopped. It's leading to the cross. He knows this. The next stop is the triumphal entry, which is a bit ironically named, but Matthew 21 Jesus enters Jerusalem right on prophetic schedule. Israel's king has come humbly mounted on a donkey. Now the crowd say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus knows his warm welcome will be short-lived. Now Jesus did a lot in Jerusalem during that Passion Week. But Matthew, he chooses to focus us on the words and works of Jesus That showcased three things. His rejection by Israel, his rejection of Israel in return, and his turn to the Gentiles. It all culminates here. You have, for example, the cursing of the fig tree, the parable of the vineyard, the parable of of the wedding feast. Just to name a few. For the sake of time, they all kind of teach the same point. I'll pick on the parable of the wedding guest. I'm sorry, the landowner. Chapter 21, starting verse 33. Um, Of course, just summarizing, but it's about a vineyard and some vine growers. And just note, from a a fig tree to a vineyard to wedding guests, these are well-known Old Testament symbols for Israel. He's obviously talking about Israel. We have this vineyard, you have an owner. He planted it, he wants its fruits. So he sends some of his slaves to go to the vine growers and gather the produce. But these vine growers are extremely wicked They beat and kill the slaves. The last of all, he sends them his own son. But as you might guess, they kill him too, thinking they can actually seize the vineyard. This this is an outrage. This is an atrocity. As Jesus tells this story, he asks his audience like, so what do you think the owner is going to do? I mean, They just killed his son. And notably, verse 41, the people say, The owner, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And it's all too obvious the vine growers represent the leaders of Israel. All throughout the ages, up to this point, who've killed the prophets. And God's wrath now is going to fall on them with a vengeance. That's not the last word though. Because the owner, after this, what does the owner do? He takes the vineyard and he gives it now to a people who will produce the fruit of it. And then Jesus makes this staggering point, verse 43 of chapter 21. He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Pharisees, next, it says they realize he was saying this about them. I mean, at this point, though, what do you expect? Israel, represented by its leaders, has rejected Israel. And it's going to kill their own Messiah, who was sent to them first, and hence the stake they had in God's kingdom is taken away. Instead, it's given to another people. And can you guess who that other people is? I mean, Matthew's readers already know it's well—it's it's all these Gentiles. They're the ones who are believing in this Messiah, and they're they're bearing fruit for God. They're going to become the owner's new vinegrowers. You know, the other gospel. The other gospel writers, Mark, Luke, John, they they trace like the same events, a lot of the same words of Jesus in his life and ministry. But it's Matthew so uniquely records these sayings of Jesus that speak of this great reversal. That as Israel has rejected him, he rejects Israel. And this continues in Matthew 23, where like, forget parables. He's not speaking plain. Jesus straight up pronounces woe and judgment on the spiritual leaders of Israel. Some of his harshest words ever are in Matthew 23. Like verse 13, to the scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. We really get the impression, the crowd, it's talking about the people, that they would have believed in Jesus as the Messiah if only their leaders endorsed them, endorsed him. They would have received him, but it didn't work out that way. Their wicked, false shepherds instead led them off a cliff into destruction. And so they're all kept out. All Israel will be judged, but their leaders receive the greatest woe. He says near the end, verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Now, like Jesus, is not, he's not happy about this. Everything will go as it has been determined. But he's not gleeful in Israel's demise. He's, he's grieved. He laments. And this chapter ends with a, a famous lament, verse 37. What does he say? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. Behold your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on. You will not see me until you say. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Christ speaking from god's perspective which he has the right to do but you know israel has actually been mostly unbelieving throughout their whole history they've rejected all of the prophets they did not listen now last of all they reject the great prophet priest and king their messiah being unwilling and unworthy he says their house will be left desolate to them a thinly veiled promise that even the temple will fall jerusalem will fall something we find in the next chapter but there's one ray of hope you should notice at the end that even after all this, Jesus does not envision a permanent end to Israel. He says the Messiah will turn away from them. They, they won't see him again until it's almost as if he's going somewhere like like maybe heaven. But until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even after all this, because of God's election, which is irrevocable, Israel's future restoration is promised. It's not our goal today, but you read Zechariah 12 through 14, learn all about that. Now this hint of restoration makes us wonder like, what else is in store for God's plan? I mean, look, so far the way God's plan unfolded was just completely unexpected by these disciples. And so like, what are, what are we supposed to expect going forward? Like, what's, what's going to happen after all this? Well, Jesus has a few things to say about that. And so, up next comes the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Matthew 25. It starts in 24, verse 2, where Jesus makes the astonishing claim that about the temple, he says that not one stone will be left upon the other. He prophesies a complete destruction of the temple. What greater sign could there be for Israel? That they're under God's curse. He's taking their temple away. Judgment would fall on them on Jerusalem, on the temple, and be fulfilled in A.D. 70. Now, in response to this, though, the disciples, they don't know what to make of this. They ask two questions. Verse 3. Two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, the disciples, like all the Jews at the time... They only thought of one coming of the Messiah, and they associated that the coming of the Messiah with the end of the age and the fullness of the kingdom. Now, little did they know there would be two comings of the Messiah, but only at his second coming will we see the end of the age and the fullness of his kingdom rule. And so for here on out, verses four through thirty-five, he answers their second question first: what will be the signs of your coming? And the end of the age. And so these verses picture global turmoil paired with global opposition to Christ's disciples. Verse 7, nation will rise up against nation. But also verse 9, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. This chapter really foresees a time when it's almost as if Christ's disciples can be found in all the nations. It's like that mustard seed has grown up and spread throughout the world. But at the same time, so has the opposition. There are tares and goats and wolves everywhere. But his disciples will give a final witness. Verse 14. It says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. The end of what? The end of the age. Jesus goes on to tell of a time of tribulation that will characterize the world at this time. There is a renewed focus, though, on Israel. Now, look—we're sticking to Matthew. It's not—it's outside of our scope. But you read Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation. You find how this, through this tribulation, which is also called the time of Jacob's trouble, how God will soften harden Israel until they repent and believe. This is when they will finally. Look on him whom they have pierced, mourn. They'll finally say, Hosanna to the son of David. And receive their Messiah and be saved. Now we still have the other question. They're like, when will this happen? When will these things be? Their first question. This gets answered in verse 36. And the basic answer is, nobody knows. Not the father or not the son. Only the father even knows in his incarnate form. No one knows. Therefore, the takeaway is verse 42. It says, therefore... Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And most of the rest of the Olive Discourse is just teaching this. This is how to be on the alert, why you should be on the alert. Be ready, because you don't know when this is going to happen. Now, the day is going to come, that's for sure. And and it ends, the end of Matthew 25, with that day. And that day pictures what's known as the sheep and goats judgment. Matthew 25, look at verse 31. Verse 31 don't know when, but here's when he comes. Verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There is another throne that he only takes when he returns. Verse 32 says, all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll separate the sheep on his right unto eternal life, which they inherit. The goats on the left go into eternal destruction, it says. The age to come and and the fullness of the kingdom is always associated with the presence of the king. Not just his authority to reign and rule, which he has, but the exercise of that authority on the earth. This is is at this point, the government will rest on his shoulders. Now, I know we're, we're leaving out. So much. We don't really have a choice. This is a sightseeing journey. But we're nearly done. We come to the end. Matthew 26. The the end has come. Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and tried. There's, There's no stopping the train at this point. Matthew 27. He's brought before Pilate, a Gentile. And this is quite significant. And Matthew makes it very clear to us that the Jews killed Jesus you can't just blame it on the Romans. But at the same time, do not think Pilate was righteous or innocent or off the hook. He bears his guilt because he still put to death a man he knew was innocent. That's actually a big deal. Verse 24, here's the point. that God used a Gentile to declare the innocence of the king of the Jews. This is, should have been the Jews, but no, he uses he, he extracts it from the mouth of a Gentile saying, I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent. He still kills him anyway, but what a confession. But here's the thing. The people who hear this, they don't care. And they invoke a blood curse on themselves. Verse 25. Pilate says he's innocent. All the people said his blood shall be on us and on our children. That is wild, and little did they know, God would essentially honor that curse. Now, lest you think the Gentiles are off the hook for rejecting Jesus, now think again, this king of the Jews would be brutally mocked and beaten by the Gentiles, as they will do to his name through the ages. But they anoint him with a crown of thorns, verse 29. We know that the same thorns that emerged after the fall of man. That's only fitting because Jesus became a curse for us that he might save us from the curse this Jesus willingly ascended the cross that he might pay for the sins of his people when that work was finished he breathed his last when he died supernatural signs accompanied his death and that led someone to make the first confession of Jesus as son of God after his death but guess who it comes from not a Jew comes from a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Verse 54, saying, Truly this man was the Son of God. And here it is again. The death of Jesus is heavy and tragic. But do not think Matthew's gospel is a tragedy. This is not a tragedy. Because it ends in victory. There's one more chapter. You should be thankful. There's one more chapter. Chapter 28. Because the last word in this story is resurrection. This Jesus... Really was the son of God. And as such, his power over the grave, finishing his payment, conquering the devil. He rose to everlasting life, which he gives to all who believe in him. This risen Christ then visited his disciples. Verse 10. Now, significantly, he tells them to go where? Go back to Galilee. Not Jerusalem. Go back to Galilee. Galilee. That's where he will meet them and give them his final instructions. That's what happens. That's how this gospel ends. And look, the way Matthew chooses to end his gospel is hugely important. It's really the interpretive key to the whole thing, telling us just the main message he wants us and really his his first Jewish Christian audience to receive. And it is this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He gathers them on a mountain in Galilee. I like to think it's the same mountain as the Sermon on the Mount, but who knows? Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here is the second, the greater Great Commission that we all focus on. But you'll notice, gone is the restriction to only visit the cities of Israel. Now that the door to the nations is, like, wide open. This was always the plan, that the nations would always be blessed in the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12.3. But you know, like, this Savior died to purchase who? Revelation 5.9. His blood, he purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so now by his authority, he sends out his disciples on their their long-term, full-time, global mission to go harvest his people from all of those nations. They're to make disciples, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. For how long? Well, until the work is done. Until the Lord returns, until the end of the age. And with that, the gospel of Matthew ends. So we finished. Now that, that was a whirlwind tour through Matthew. I hope you made it. I hope you didn't drown or get lost or fall asleep. And believe it or not, we actually left out a ton. We don't do this often, but from time to time, I think it's good to just behold how vast God is, his scriptures are, his plan The other gospel writers speak about these issues, they do, but Matthew makes it like one of his main messages. Now at this point, let's take just a few minutes and kind of like pull together what we observe from this study. What have we learned about God's plan of salvation in Christ as it relates to Jews and Gentiles? A few points, like they should already have crystallized together in your mind. First, just note the theme of Jewish priority. Just like Jesus said to the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. It also goes first to the Jews. They're the children of the kingdom. They are the initial wedding guests. They get the first invites. This is part of the promises of God upon his elect nation. Furthermore, the divine Messiah came incarnate as a Jew. He was circumcised, he kept the law. His disciples were all Jews. These are just facts. You should recognize and and appreciate that God's plan of salvation through Christ was fully in line, a natural outgrowth of his plan through Israel and the Old Testament. Now, we've seen the Jews in Christ's day didn't have eyes to see that plan. That leads to the second point. Secondly, note the theme of Jewish rejection. The Jews did not have entirely wrong expectations of the Messiah. It's just they, they couldn't see his two comings. And so when his, his kingdom came the first time spiritually, but not politically, and when, his, when Israel's spiritual leaders were deemed unfit for this kingdom, they turned on Jesus. They led the people to reject him as well. And so not only did they tear up their wedding invitations, they killed the groom. And so like it says, the children of the kingdom will be cast out. As the nation has rejected their Christ, he has rejected them. But third. Note the theme of Jewish rejection leading to Gentile salvation. Jesus made it clear at first, he came only to reach the Jews. This was a mission to reach Israel. But we've also learned it It was also always the plan to reach the nations. It's always been the plan to the nations through Israel. Jesus knew that this is the mystery of God. This is Acts 4.28. So what God's hand is. And purpose have predestined to occur. Acts 4 and 28. Namely, the mystery. Israel would crucify and reject their own Messiah. But through resurrection, that defeat turns into victory as he was making atonement in his death. And the rejection actually is what opens the floodgates of his blood to flow to all the nations. Who would have thought this would be how God would extend his mercy to the nations? But as it concerns Matthew, this this helps explain why that first commission back in Matthew 10, the limited one, gives way to this greater global great commission at the end. Now, speaking of Matthew himself, we, we we can see what he was doing in his gospel for his initial audience. He's explaining to his people. Just the the remnant of Jewish Christians. Why things are the way they are. These Jewish Christians, the the first church, they were all witnessing like this great reversal in real time. Most of the nation was hardened. The natural branches were being cut off. And so you, you get the impression that if an unbelieving Jew were to read Matthew, he would want them to know just how privileged they have been by God. They've received everything from God. And on top of all that, look, look, your Messiah, He came to you first. He gave you the first offer. Don't turn away from His overwhelming favor to you, the Jews. Yet, for all these believing Jews who are now in the church and they're watching all these Gentiles enter in and just overwhelm their numbers, the message has to be just accept them now as brothers. The only stake anyone has in this Messiah and His kingdom is by grace through faith. And God's grace has opened the door to Jew and Gentile. How could, how could you argue that's unfair for God to do? But as they see God's plan and heart for these Gentiles, for all the nations, they should open up their heart as well and pursue unity. As Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, this, is, this church is Jew and Gentile together as one in the one new man, the church. These Jews should even swallow their national pride. They should kill their old prejudice. And they should actually make disciples of all the nations. That doesn't hit you. Because this is old news and we're Gentiles. Like, all right, go reach the nations. No big deal. But to Jews, you're telling me now the mission. I have to go to these people we once hated, the the dogs. We're to make disciples of them? The Great Commission was, was crazy to them. This was hard to hear. But after reading Matthew, how can you not accept that conclusion is God's will? Now, after Matthew ends, we're left to wonder what will become of national Israel. And this story is not over. There's more to it. After the Gospels comes the book of Acts, which chronicles the beginning of the church. And it might surprise you, Jewish priority continues. After Jesus rises, he elaborates on this great commission in the book of Acts before he ascends. He tells his apostles this, this is Acts 1.8, kind of like their last instruction. He says, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. And that's actually the pattern of the whole book of Acts. The gospel offer still starts with Israel. It goes to the Jews, and then it goes out from there. This, you know, is also the pattern and practice of the apostle Paul. In all of his missionary journeys, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue to preach to the Jews only after they reject does he turn to the Gentiles. Now, in the end, the early church turned out just like Jesus predicted. Most Jews did not believe being blinded and cursed. Meanwhile, Gentiles flooded in. What does this mean for Israel going forward? Well, remember I told you that that Matthew, he's only second to the apostle Paul in explaining the place of Israel and the Gentiles in the church, present and future. You can't really have a full discussion about Jewish priority and the place of Israel in the church without considering Paul. I mean, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and especially his epistle to the Romans. So having established this foundation on Matthew, I I hate to tell you, but we're coming back next week (laughs) for just one more message, one more sightseeing trip, to build on this foundation and next just one more looking at Jewish priority according to Paul. I hope that will help answer our remaining questions and just even further solidify this appreciation of the plan of God for the people of God. For now, let's wrap up with, with, I think you might say three applications to this survey. Now, first and foremost, Far be it from us to gloss over the main message Matthew is trying to send to all disciples of Christ, and that is to fulfill the Great Commission. This commission to make disciples of all the nations, it's, it's the standing orders of Christ to his church until the end of the age. And God has willed that his offer of mercy in Christ should go out through us to the nations. And we are those who have received such mercy. How can we not? How can we not extend it to others by his gospel? And this is doubly true. If you're here as a Gentile, this is doubly true. His mercy has been extended to you. We should be moved to gratitude. We, we too should share God's heart for the nations. Whether that means going overseas or just talking to your unbelieving family member. And pray that God would burden your heart for those who are lost, who are perishing. And that you would do something to share the good news of Christ with them. Pray and be convicted. Secondly, behold the kindness and severity of God. To steal a little thunder from Romans 10. He says it's, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. But his patience does not last forever. Those who hear the message of Christ but persist in rejecting him, they only have are left with the promise of judgment. And look, that judgment is not just for the Jews. Gentiles can be just as hardened in unbelief. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But if he's not your savior by faith, you're still under God's curse. If you refuse to receive him as Lord, then you'll only know him as judge. We must be faithful to repeat this serious message of warning. And look, some of you here today might need to hear it. As, as it says in Romans 10, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Just humble yourself. See your sin. See God's mercy in this plan through Christ and believe in him. Today could very well be your last day. We always say, believe in the Lord Jesus today. And lastly, and really a big takeaway that I want you to leave with is just to marvel at the wisdom of God like, I, I know this study this morning was a bit overwhelming. Like, like I can't even remember all this. But it's not really the point. Rather, on purpose, I wanted you to catch a glimpse of the scale of God and his plans. When you go out in the ocean, you're reminded this thing is pretty big. Like, the ocean is big. The ocean is vast. Just stretches on forever. It's limitless. And then it's also deep. We can't even plumb its depths. Just we are so small in comparison to the ocean. And similarly, by by diving through the breadth of scripture, we see like this this God is big. His plans are vast. They span centuries and continents. Look, we just looked at one book of the Bible in part. There are 66 books. This is just a small fraction of his plans. But we see just a glimpse of the wisdom of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so a big takeaway I hope you leave with this morning, it's almost a feeling or an impression, a conviction, like this God is big. This God is wise. This God knows what he's doing. This is the God who declares the end from the beginning. This is the God who brings about his sovereign will in the most unexpected ways. This is the God who takes what men mean for evil and turns it to good. And so therefore you should, should marvel at this God, you should fear this God. And then you should deeply trust this God with your life, with your life. It's true that when you see his plans at scale, you, just, you feel like a tiny drop in the ocean, like who are we compared to him? And that's appropriate. But the amazing thing is that you too are in this God's hands. Even your and my small lives are in his hands, in his will and his plans. And so trust him with your very life as you now give it to him in service. I pray you come away with a bigger vision of God and his plans that it might lead you to bigger worship in all ways. Here's just a perfect closing verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. Just listen. It says this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs. And Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block. To Gentiles foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved. Christ. Both He says both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. He Is the power and the wisdom. We've tasted and received. So let's glorify him for it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good this morning and also big, wise, sovereign. You hold this whole world in your hands. All of humanity is accounted as nothing before you. You could take every accomplishment of all humanity and all history, put it on the scales. They don't even budge against your worth, your value. You are our big God. We gained a vision of that this morning. We see it so much so through the, the plan of redemption Redemptive history through these people, Jews, Gentiles, most of all, Christ, Savior. Our Savior, rather, our Lord. Help us to marvel just at you. That's part of our worship, just sitting in admiration. We, we don't understand it all. We never will. You are limitless. Who can search the mind of God? But what has been revealed, may we not take for granted. May we appreciate and, and worship the God who's been revealed. Move us to holiness. Move us to witness May we take our part as now disciples of this same Savior, those who have received him only by your grace. May we extend that same grace and mercy to all those around us, our loved ones, our friends, so many are perishing. Give us your heart for the lost. We need it that we might fulfill our commission until the Lord comes, until the end of the age. We wait for that. May we work diligently until then. It's in his name we pray, amen.